Welcome to the exam room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. In this episode, I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Josh Landy, founder and CEO of Figure One, a medical image social network for health professionals. Since images play a central role in both education and communication in healthcare, I thought it'd be fun to pick Josh's brain about what he's learned with the rise of his company. And as it turns out, when you let health professionals share millions of images on one social platform, you can learn a lot about how they think and work. It's a fascinating company on an upward trajectory, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that. Empower your patients, the patient, and provide a solution. Maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really are saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. So welcome to the exam room, Dr. Landy, or I'll call you Josh, right? <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I guess if you are a uh, healthcare provider and uh, you don't know about figure one, you perhaps may be living, in, living under a rock, I think. But we do have a lot of listeners, Josh, who are not healthcare professionals, and I think they haven't had a chance to hear about it. So fill them in. What, tell us what figure one is and uh, what's it trying to do. Thanks. So figure one is... Um is a platform where physicians can go to essentially exchange ideas about clinical cases. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it started out as an app and now it's a website and, uh, and actually a podcast and, uh, there's, there's lots of other extensions, but essentially we, we help physicians educate each other. Um, our goal is to be able to extend the experience of being surrounded by your colleagues and having the ability to delve into the interesting medical parts of a case uh, at any time and make that available to people so that they can learn medicine, get some, uh, make, make the most, uh, of that downtime, make it productive downtime. So you said professionals, I think, or health professionals, I think you might've just said, so this isn't just for doctors, right? I mean, I think you've, if I'm not mistaken, you guys have taken figure one beyond just MDs and DOs into other healthcare professionals. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, we've actually uh, long held that uh, healthcare does not happen in a vacuum, and in fact, you need all parts of this machine to be able to work together. Uh, and you know, the bottom line is healthcare education. So, educating healthcare professionals saves lives, and that's the bottom line. Uh, what we have in our community is a physician-led community of people who are teaching each other at different levels, uh, interacting around real medical cases that they've seen some of which are run-of-the-mill cases that you might read uh, in a textbook. And some of them are cases that are strange beyond your wildest, your wildest imagination. So, uh, you know, uh, things really do go in any direction because it's a reflection of the way people really practice. This is real-life medicine, uh, and, and we're trying to create an, an analog so people know how to interact with real-life medicine uh, using their devices. So, in reality, how are the professionals of figure one using it. Um, I know, you know, as I poke around figure one, I see, you know, I kind of see this as an educational tool. I see it as a social tool. I see people sharing 
things that they've seen in the OR. They aren't necessarily teaching things. Uh, how, how, how is it that people are using it and how has it evolved that way? All right. So uh, that's a good question. You know, because it has a lot of different uh, parts to experience, uh, maybe I'll just describe our core experience, which is what people use on the website and the app. And, and you know, it's not that they're socializing, really. They're more professionalizing. This is the way a person would spend their day if they were working in their usual workplace. So if you're a healthcare professional, you go to work and you experience many different cases all day long. Some you experience in depth and others just in passing. And so these are the sorts of cases that people upload. And the thing that makes up uh, a user upload a case is the same thing that uh, prompts you to share it uh, with it, with anybody. And anytime I've, I've addressed an audience um, of healthcare professionals, I ask this question. I say, does anybody here have, uh, have images on their cell phones of medical cases. Um, and just to put you on the spot, Brian, uh, do you have any pictures of, of cases on your phone? You know, what's interesting. I, the answer to that is yes. Um, and what's interesting when I see happening here in, in our hospital is the fact that our, our communication, our EHR, it's, it's tricky to share information. So people will take pictures off a screen off the, the monitor and share things that way, which I think is kind of interesting. So the answer is yes, I do have, have images. Yeah, yeah. So you you join a very healthy 100% majority of your colleagues. Probably, I think so. Uh, that's, I, that's, that's, that's how that breaks down every time. This is like, you know, if you, like, unless you have a phone that cannot take pictures, in which case you have a phone that can't have stuff on it on, on your phone, then, right. uh, then you have clinical pictures on your phone and you have them for many reasons, right? Like some of these cases are going to be uh, you know, rare and uh, in, in the sort of like imaginative world of the zebra. And some of them are going to be, I never thought this was going to look this way. And some of them are going to be, I really want to pay attention to this case. Uh, I better document it closely. And these are the same reasons why people put cases up there and they're doing it um, both to expose the learnings that are inside. So senior, more, more um, experienced doctors will put up a case and say, uh, you know, we had this present to our emergency room. Uh, what would you do next? And then they'll sort of, you know, do a Q&A and walk through. Other people are on the other end of that. They're seeing that same strange case for the very first time in their career. And they're saying, this came into the emergency department. What would you do next? Right? And they might be using the exact same words, but you can see by the conversation that develops and how people tend these sort of like cases, almost like gardens. They come back and they trim the questions, they answer, they moderate. And those conversations can become almost anything. This is um, this is this is the way that medicine socializes, and we learn, right? Like if you, it, this is maybe the thing that I feel most powerful about Figure One is that when you think about the education you receive as a healthcare professional, as a doctor, you go through med school, you go through residency, and there's a lot of clinics, clinical exposure. You did go to a lot of classes, but the amount of stuff that you use every day that comes from your classes, I, I would I would cap that at maximum twenty percent. I would estimate that eighty percent or more. That's high. I think that's probably high. Do. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But I just want to be generous or conservative so that I can, you know, I can make the point that yeah. almost everything that we learn, we learn from being around people, seeing them do things in medicine and doing them ourselves. That is how medicine really uh, gets taught. And so what I want to be able to do is take the most powerful thing that we've seen exist on this world, which is uh, the attention that we devote to smartphones, and give uh, people the opportunity to imbue this know-how through the connection that we now all have. Um, it, it, it feels like 
education should be able to lift itself off the page for any user who uh, who wants that kind of experience. So this is like this is like a really huge a huge physician lounge, right? <laughs> I guess so. Although you know, walking down the hallway, grabbing coffee with people, um, having lunch with people, running into friends in the corridors, or even just sort of um, uh, you know. Um, chatting over, uh, uh, you know, between cases when you're both got a break. So every bit of the hospital is the lounge when you're not in front of a patient. So in terms of like workflow, my workflow on figure one, I can go on figure one as a healthcare professional and I can, I can share an image that I think is just kind of cool. Right. And I guess there's also this other functionality where I can ask for professional input or ask for a consult. How does that work? So, um, you're, you're referring to our paging feature. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's a pretty neat feature. What it lets you do is uh, specifically summon the advice of a particular specialist um, if you have a case that you need to learn something specific. Um, I think now is as good a time as any uh, for me to delineate where I think figure one is best used and where we're not aiming. Um, because this the idea of using a tool like this at the bedside, while perhaps appealing from a futuristic perspective, does not feel like this is what people are doing today, right? We need to be able to, um, I think, realize what the limits of your smartphone is to make sure that you're able to like devote the attention you need uh, where it needs to go, which is when you're in the clinic, you know, to your patients or to your charts or to the OR or to the procedure. You have innumerable things to focus on during the day. And so we think it was figure one, um, you get to experience these cases through productive downtime. You're home, you're using your phone, and you're able to review, rethink, reconsider the cases you've seen and gain CME or teach others. Um, and that way, when you're with a patient, you can be with that patient. Uh, I know you've, you, you did a great uh, episode on empathy recently, and I think that being able to give people our attention is one of the most important things that we can do as professionals. So this concept of productive downtime is really interesting. That caught my my ear. So you kind of see yourself as being a a place where doctors can go in between the sacred space of working with patients to learn and share, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think this is analogous to the way that doctors learn from each other in real life. This consult, I guess, paging issue is uh, or paging feature rather, is that being used? to really drive uh, decisions or is it to drive individual education of students and providers? In other words, are people using this to really kind of figure out how to manage their patients or is it some sort of hybrid? Um, I think there's a bit of like educational philosophy that I, I want to point to and sort of illustrating how, how this is actually um, uh, a, an educational tool. And it's the concept that uh, when you think about treating a case of pneumonia, for example, you can simply think about, well, I need to make sure the patient's uh, oxygen needs are met. I need to make sure the patient uh, is not hemodynamically unstable. Of course, the appropriate antibiotics need to be chosen uh, and you know, a few other uh, small considerations. And that's fairly easy to talk about in the abstract. Um, but when it comes down to treating a real patient with those questions, you get those questions answered 
pretty quickly, but it's what to do with the rest of the patient's either illness or health state or complications that arise out of your first four choices. And so when it comes down to it, seeing one specific patient who has a very particular form of pneumonia in their current health state has a uniqueness to them. And that is what makes practicing medicine, taking the abstract concept of pneumonia and applying it to an individual who is not a smooth, shiny surface. And so being able to reach out to a specialist and say, this is the case we have. It doesn't fit in the usual way. This is harder. That part to me is where you really learn a lot about medicine. It's how do people use resourcefulness to overcome certain uh, uh, limitations or how do people creatively approach a situation where you seemingly have uh, a contradiction in the patient's needs and your ability to treat them. Um, you know, this, these are the hard parts. It's the exceptions, not the predictable patterns, right? Yeah. And in fact, you know, I think um, you've sort of hinted uh, at this uh, in some of your writing that, um, Almost all of medicine is unpredictable points, right? Like there's, there's, there's some very easy things that we know, right? Um, the usual clinical approaches. But every single person has their unique bits that make it hard. Otherwise, you know, this, this job could be easily done by robots. No, absolutely right. Yeah, I, I think we've, we've only um, – we, we really only learn from these specific cases, right? The specifics are the hard parts. Um, and so that's why the more you see, the better you get, because you see more variations on a theme and you begin to really understand that theme. And so paging is a, is a tool that lets us pick up those hyper-specific examples uh, and serve them to people with a very tightly focused question. How do I make this diagnosis in the context of this other challenging factor? Right. You know, it's funny. I had a patient in the exam room last uh, week, and one of the things I said to this family was... Um, my life is about identifying patterns. And after 20 years in medicine, I can identify certain patterns in patients. And I see kids day in and day out. And when something doesn't fit to your point, that's when things really kind of bother me. And that's when I have to kind of really sit down and take more time to dig in or access these resources like you're talking about through figure one to kind of summons up something bigger, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that your level of training, not your per se, because of course, um, mm. uh, you're not a trainee, but uh, people who are trainees, I think, sit in that uh, that place where it's really uncomfortable because you don't know what to do a lot more than a senior clinician because they've just seen more cases. They know how to put these things into the right boxes. And so things that don't appear part of patterns become part of patterns as your pattern recognition skill grows and you get to enjoy a larger and larger pattern, you know, of all the cases uh, that fit of a particular set. New York Times tech writer Clive Thompson once said that a tool's most transformative uses generally take us by surprise. Hmm. Have you been surprised by anything on figure one I mean, given how you started it and where it is now, or have you been um, surprised by what people have done, or has it been anything that you didn't expect? Hmm. That's a, that's a that's a good quote, and I really like it from an innovation perspective. Um, you know, I uh, there's been a couple of things that have surprised me. The, the first thing that I think is most surprising is the depth of specialization that even people who practice uh, at a primary care level. Um, uh, have. And so that's that there is essentially put another way, there is no general audience in medicine that everybody is a specialist, uh, either in their own mind or their own practice. 
um, you know, even yourself, you're a pediatric gastroenterologist, but I bet you've got areas uh, of specialty even within that and areas that maybe you, you, you don't care for or they don't cross your path because of uh, some part of your practice that you control or something that you don't control. Right. What do you think about that? Well, so to, to jump on that, yeah, I am a, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist and it's, what's so funny is that, uh, we talk about this, uh, at Texas Children's Hospital, Baylor College of Medicine, where I work because I, uh, I run community services in gastroenterology and I consider myself kind of a, a generalist in digestive health, mm-hmm. uh, downtown where we refer all of our super complicated cases. We have hepatobiliary specialists, uh, liver specialists, uh, motility, uh, intestinal rehab. And I, so I'm, I kind of see myself almost like a primary care GI provider. And I always joke that being out in the community and handling a lot of these common cases up front, even as a GI generalist, it's its own specialty in a way to your point, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, so it's, I, I, I kind of like that because it's, it's, it's something that, um, I don't know, make, make people special. That's not the, the thing, but it, it is, it truly is, uh, whether it's art meets science or whatever, it, it truly is uh, my own, my own little, my own little niche. No, I, I think that's the, the appropriate way to empathize with your colleagues, right? This idea of professional empathy, where you, um, you recognize that uh, your colleagues have hard jobs, right? It's not the more specialized the job you have, uh, the harder it gets, and only the people with the most robust constitutions can make it to the sub 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 specialist level. Everything is hard if you're doing medicine. Medicine's inherently challenging because of this idea of there, you know, being no general cases, things not always fitting the way they go, or or um, having cases that can present in any way at any time. So, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt to people who see things in certain contexts, like primary care providers, who's lives um i am no longer like equipped to really be a partner for i you know i'm a critical care specialist i also do a little bit of uh general internal medicine um Mm -hmm. but i'm sufficiently specialized that i can't really look at a pediatrics generalist case or see somebody who comes in Mm -hmm. and know how to confidently work them up for low back pain um you know i want to be aware of those limits because i think Staying within your scope of specialty is the best way to serve both the patient and your colleagues. Hey, everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. Josh, let me talk about safety for just a bit. Obviously, for someone listening for the first time, this is kind of scary taking a picture of a patient and putting it onto a public platform. Tell us what figure one does to kind of safeguard patients, both in terms of your software and what's required and like terms of service. 
Sure. So we, um, as you know, we, we share many, many cases, uh, you know, at this point it's, uh, it's well into the billions. I remember a few years ago we announced we had shared over 2 billion cases. Uh, and that's a metric we long stopped tracking cause it was just becoming an incomparably large number. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, it was like really, um, you know, and when you, when you re- when you think about planning for that scope, um, you can't really let any major mistakes slip into the the framework of that because then you've got your own mistake copied, you know, billions of times over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, you know, making sure that we were able to capture these cases in a way that protected patient privacy was, um, was part of, uh, the structure of figure one, like really before, uh, before we even launched the app in the app store, um, we had lawyers working on this problem. How do we share cases in a way that makes it safe for the patients themselves? Uh, and the answer is simple. Uh, there are a number of identifying features of a case. If those identifying features are present, that means you can track that case back to its origin. Uh, and that person can be identified. None of those features are permitted to be part of figure one cases. Uh, and we had to create a number of layers of security around that, um, including educating our users, putting them into, uh, you know, designing an app that has the appropriate design features to walk somebody through removing uh, private pieces of information. And then, of course, uh, on our end, having a privacy moderation team, who is a, a group of uh, trained human beings who are here in our office who look at these images before they're made public. Um, not to mention um, all the different types of um, uh, encryption and various other types of technologic assistance that we have. Those pieces are all part of this privacy tool that we've, or this, it's maybe more of a privacy process that we've created and been working on over the past five years. So, um, you know, the whole point is that the best way to, the best way to keep a secret is not to know it. Uh, and we work very hard at, uh, at keeping those secrets out of figure one, because even if our, um, if our, if our data were to be made entirely public, there wouldn't be any patient data. Nobody would, um, I mean, of course we would have a problem because our data would be everywhere. Uh, imagine cleaning that up data just everywhere. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, uh, there wouldn't be any patient concerns. Do providers still consent? Do they still, con- uh, I guess you used to, I remember when you, when you guys launched, I don't know if you still had this, there was a built-in consent or a finger sign consent that that's still you guys still have that that's still yeah we do with every upload uh you get presented with the opportunity to use that consent form uh depending on your jurisdiction you tell us what country you're in uh, and we serve you a consent form that's been modified and um and customized uh i think over 50 or 60 times uh, and comes in just as many languages uh that consent form is for the patient um, the doctor presents it to the patient saying, I consent to having my case shared, uh, of course, lacking the uh, personalized information. And uh, the patient can sign the screen right there. Now, of course, uh, consent is different in every jurisdiction. And so we didn't create a form for, uh, we con- we made a form that you could use if your, if your local institution doesn't provide one for you, or if they don't uh, prevent you from even doing it, right? Uh, we want to make sure that healthcare professionals are acting safely in their environments. Follow the rules that you're meant to follow. And if you need a consent form, here's one for you. If you have your own, use that one instead. Yeah, there's an interesting editorial in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, I think two weeks ago, that was calling for kind of a review of health privacy law. You know, in in the United States, the health privacy laws were designed around patients with HIV in the 80s. And, uh, 
um, time has really come to kind of review, I think, what our standards are for privacy, because they're certainly different in this digital age. And one thing I've noticed with families, uh, families want us to share information if it improves their child's care. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. And so when we, when we, when we get all wigged out about privacy, which we have to by law, uh, the families are like, what's the big deal? I really kind of want this. If there's a colleague across in the medical center who can give us information, why not share it with them? But the families don't always understand how we're restricted, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly fair. I mean, some of the research that I had done before starting Figure One, uh, you know, hints at uh, these behaviors already being well seated or deeply seated uh, in the physician populations. Um, I was at Stanford in 2012, and we were studying how young physicians are using their uh, mobile devices for medical education. And what we learned is that an overwhelming majority of, uh, of young doctors were sharing cases using text messaging and email, right. um, not being too cautious about private details. And that does, you know, that is, that does contravene HIPAA. And so these, mm-hmm. you know, people are sharing cases because it's essentially in everyone's interest for them to be able to do that, right? right. For doctors to be able to share it with other doctors, share that information. And essentially, um, you're almost decentralizing the knowledge, um, where, you know, so that you can gain the insight of someone who sees your case, who you know, who's nearby. Um, and that that type of uh, behavior was already happening, although it was happening in an unsafe way that wasn't necessarily all that educational, right? Um, mm-hmm. Those conversations, those texts back and forths uh, between two, two, um, two physicians talking about a case, like that is some great learning fodder to be able to see two people working out the details of a case uh, together, right? That's a, every medical student's dream is to listen to those kinds of conversations. Nearby is essentially irrelevant now. So why not share it with a pediatrician in the United Kingdom or in South America, uh, you know, or in Houston? I remember the first time I had a patient uh, share an image with me via text. Uh, I was at San Francisco International Airport. Mother of a child with cerebral palsy had uh, called my nurse, had a rash on the G-tube, sent me an image. It looked like Canada. I called the mom right back from the airport and actually was sitting next to two or three other doctors. And we all concurred sitting in the visit, in the, in the, in the presence lounge, <laughs> and lounge. And the mother was so excited that like had this immediate, didn't have to bring the child in the wheelchair in and, 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 and so forth. And so it's, uh, it's a, you know, this is a situation where the technology is ahead of our kind of our laws and whatnot. And I think, I anticipate that that's going to change going forward, and uh, I hope anyway. Yeah, I mean, you see that. You know, I, I've been I've been asked about what the future of healthcare is uh, a few times, um, and while I'm reluctant to like make any wide sweeping guesses, I think the one thing that's obvious is the ability to change, you know send information around is going to be a huge part of it. Uh, let's lean into that, right? Like that's a powerful change. So what kind of company is figure one? I, I, you know, I hear, I hear media company, I hear a social network, I hear educational company, or is it just sort of an academic question? Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it's true. No, um, it's, it's an important one, even for sort of creating a company and guiding it, right? You need to decide what your North star is. Um, and the truth is that I think we are a little bit of a hybrid. 
we we take the you know we've built this platform um, which you know has millions of registered users around the world and we serve content on lots of different platforms right like we've we build software for people to consume on an Android device or an iOS or if you're using the web um, and then on top of that what we've found is that the be- the the content um, that works best for a physician audience are the the cases that come from our users um, with a little bit of added context mm-hmm. or a little bit of added digging. And so, you know, shining those cases up and, and showing people what the, you know, here's the impressive part of this case. And that that's actually why we started um, with the DDX podcast. Uh, that's figure one's, uh, I'm not going to say the latest offering, but that was something we did this year, 2018 new was a, a podcast where we sort of unpacked one case per episode uh, in, in a 10 minute episode that then takes you on a tour of how that doctor came to their conclusions and, um, an exploration of what is so rich about that decision or that, that set of choices. Why was this a hard case and how do we, how do we deal better with hard cases like this one? It's not a zebras podcast. It's about how doctors actually see their work day to day. Um, and I think that's what really connected with audiences. So, you know, using that voice of, of saying, we, you know, we can, we can tell patients, we can tell the stories of doctors and nurses, and we can do that to an audience of people who want to learn from those cases. Um, that more or less makes us a medical education company, but I think we're slightly redefining what medical education uh, means itself, right? I'm not talking about you need to be a student. You just need to be curious. You need to be a curious person who's interested in furthering your knowledge of medicine because that's the doctor I want to go to. I look at figure one and I see so much potential in terms of where you could take this. I mean, it's like my imagination just goes wild when I think of starting with a platform of images, um, everything from taking it to the public to furthering education. And uh, really, you've done a remarkable job here. (laughs) That's very kind. Can you tell me more? Because I love hearing what people can see in this. Um, You know, I'm just one guy and there's a lot of people here too. But um, I think the idea of being able to, uh, you know, to to use a a platform like this is powerful. And I want to hear what people think because, you know, you and many other people who are interested in medical education, those are the people we're building it for. So when I hear this pod, you know, one of my very early criticisms of figure one was, was this lack of context. Okay. A picture goes up and it floats in the stream. And um, I think one of my early, you know, criticisms was how do we put this into a broader context? How do we take this and build on it? And when I hear about creating, you know, digging deeper and looking at how an image or, you know, how an image is used to sort of help us understand how doctors think, that's really powerful. And I think that that's something that really can be expanded and leveraged in medical education. Um, there are just so many ways. I mean, just the public. I mean, the public, could, I know we, we, we talked loosely that this is something that the public could see these some of these images and learn from them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's absolutely true. Um, once you have sort of a, a useful media library of cases and stories and con and constructs um and they link to each other you can essentially get lost and think about how medical decisions get made all day long um right and you can be as nerdy as you want around it right that's that's what we're here for we want to hear about that from people so josh tell me let's talk for just a moment about authority so a professor of pediatrics at the university of calgary submits a picture of a rash from hennock shawn line purpura 
the same time, a medical student from California does the same thing. You know, in the old order, the people with authority in the medical kind of industrial complex were the people who had access to the journals, which is where we shared information. Figure one has leveled that, right? Anyone can put up an image. So how do you deal with this issue of authority or is it is authority really not that important? Is is it is the idea that the the little guy and the way out in, in, in rural Canada has something to share and that's what we should we should learn from? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. Um, I admit it's uh, it's a it's a tricky area, and it's really important to be able to solve both because one, you know, that the medical establishment already has expectations that things kind of do work uh, on an authoritarian basis, and uh, you know, in a in a, in a simultaneous voice, you know that you want to be able to think about best practices, best evidence, and uh, let the best argument win whatever you think uh, the answer is. And so um, how do we measure clinical know-how? How do we measure this 80% of where you spend your time? Uh, we haven't, we as a medical uh, education institution, I just mean medical education as a whole. Um, this is the thing that has been a struggle for 50 years in medical education. How do we really capture what it is that people, uh, how do you know whether someone knows what they're talking about? Mm-hmm. Like this is the ultimate right. question of uh, this is the ultimate question about of professionalism. Do you know enough so that you can excuse yourself humbly when you don't know the answer? Um, and those sort of open conversations mean that you don't have to obey authority. You have to obey whether you know, like who knows the answer, and how do we talk about the answers? Um, my preference is always to you know, like listen to what people are saying. Right. This this goes this touches again on professional empathy, right? Or, or interprofessional empathy. Um, you want to make sure that you're listening as much as you're talking, um, it, especially if we're we're in a an area where there's an open question. Figure one sort of wandered uh, into this debate. You know, we we're not interested in taking a specific side. Um, we let people post their their information on their their bios, and so you can verify yourself as a. Um, you know, as a specialist of whatever type you are. And in your bio, you can include the amount of uh, experience you have. We invite people to specify that when they sign up, actually. We ask you how much experience do you have. Um, We want to celebrate credentials uh, and experience and be sure that those are respected. I've always been impressed through my career uh, out in the communities of rural Texas with people who are so experienced yet they're somehow apologetic that they don't have that authority and they somehow feel like they can't share that. And I always thought that was such a pity that we didn't, those voices don't have a platform. And I think that's one of the things that figure one does is it kind of democratize, it democratizes the ability to share things, right? I, I think it does to a degree. Um, you remarked on a, on a blog post recently how Twitter is an, is, uh, is a medium that people use for medical conversations, but it's it's not um, it's not ideal for those conversations. And um, you know, I don't think Figure One's yet the ideal place for it either. But I think we're working on it, maybe more than they are. So, Josh, where do you see Figure One headed? I, I don't I don't want you to give away spill the beans here, but um, you've had an amazing five years, and you've kind of defied what I thought you'd ever do, and. Uh, uh, it's been wonderful to see you <laughs> we, grow, we, and you know, we aim to defy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I hope I hope I motivated you on some level. And uh, but wh- where do you 
I mean, if you can share with us where you'd like to where you'd like to go or where you see Figure One going. Sure. Um, I just want to say if, that if people uh, who are listening don't know, um, uh, Brian wrote uh, a blog post about Figure One when we were a nascent company. Maybe we were six months or eight months old. Um, and it was the most clarion call to the things that we needed to pay attention to and questions that we had to ask ourselves. Because, you know, he was asking great questions like, you know, what is the context for these images? How do you protect privacy? And um, we had we had answers to them, but they were answers we knew. We didn't know how to tell people the answers. And so, you, you know, that call to action for us was sort of what organized us into realizing we needed to uh, step up our game, if you will, uh, in talking to medical professionals about these important topics. So that's the past. Looking forward, um, there's probably two major things that we're sort of launching or, or um, working on through the summer. Uh, the first is we're looking to explore lots of different ways that people can start to get CME on, on figure one. You know, you're, you're in this environment looking at cases and talking to your colleagues. Is there a way that, you know, every part of that can be counted uh, for, a, a, you know, an educational experience? The same way that you would want to count all those little bits of conversations with doctors where you talked about a case and you took something away from it. Um, so, you know, we're, we're exploring some opportunities about how to be able to, uh, uh, you know, basically count this as micro credits. So you really could achieve that idea of productive downtime. Uh, and then the, the, the second part of that is, um, letting loose, uh, a whole slew of educators, uh, onto the platform, uh, to sort of, um, help organize the conversations around certain clinical topics. And the figure one educators program is, uh, is an educational program that we're starting uh, the first one of over the 12 weeks of the, of this summer. So um, we're going to be essentially asked inviting uh, experienced and some inexperienced educators to join us uh, as we sort of design a series of uh, mini curricula around various topics on figure one. See if we can plant more seeds in the network that grow more fruit. You know what I mean? That's exciting, Josh. Uh, it's been great hearing about Figure One. If uh, anyone listening is a healthcare professional who has not signed up for Figure One, I strongly recommend you uh, check it out. Uh, it is addictive. It's kind of like uh, it's like Instagram. You kind of, as you said, you get lost in these uh, these images, and you can really get find yourself in a rabbit hole. And so, uh, but in a good way, right? Um, so I think the future looks bright, and I think you've created an amazing platform that allows uh, a voice for a lot of doctors who do have their own kind of authority, um, and uh, I hope you keep it going. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Yeah, thanks. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals, healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.